Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, the spiritual food from heaven that God gave them every morning, just that generation only. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man or humanity shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. It says, you shall remember. You shall remember. So, Again, we have an application where Moses is taking us back to remember, but he's really talking again to a younger generation. Remember the the fire and the trials that came out of as they're prepared to enter into prosperity. It'd almost be like more like from my father's generation. My dad would be 91 in a week or so, and my father grew up in the Great Depression. He was born uh, in May of 1930. So as a child, he grew up in the Depression in the Midwest. His father worked very hard, a number of jobs. His mother worked very hard, a number of jobs. They also had a boarding house there in Madison, Wisconsin, for the University of Wisconsin students. So my dad grew up with students around, and they did whatever they could to make money. And the big treat for my dad was a nickel, two nickels on a Saturday, a nickel for the movie, and a nickel to get ice cream after the movie. All right? And so he, he grew up in the Depression with a lack of certain things, and then, of course, he remembers very clearly Pearl Harbor, when Pearl Harbor happened, that everyone left. They all enlisted. They went away to war. His father went away to war with the American Red Cross 4th Marine Division. His dad was too old to serve. He was in his early 40s, and so he served at the Red Cross for two and a half years in the South Pacific. Many of you know that story. Iwo Jima, all of it, the whole nine yards. My grandfather was there. So my dad grew up with all that, and my dad was inspired by that. So he goes to the University of Wisconsin, ROTC, joins the Marines, and has a good life. He had a good military career, 22 years, colonel, served in Korea and Vietnam, combat action in both wars. But he, he came from this poverty, and through the military and military benefits, you know, he had a good life. And he, he bought property, and he owned houses. And when he retired from the Marine Corps, he bought a beautiful house in Carlsbad. And my parents got divorced, and so he moved to Vista. Then my mom eventually sold that house, bought a house in Vista. And my dad was a, an honest, hardworking, middle-class person, but he never had lack of want. And he's taken care of very well in retirement because of the military benefits. But the point being is he came out of poverty and he left behind prosperity because he has certainly left prosperity for my brother, my older brother, and my younger sister. We know that all these people have been leaving California, kind of my generation or a little bit younger. The older generation died off. They worked in the military. They worked for Boeing. They worked at all these places and worked very hard. And they lived the American dream like the Life magazine where the family's out front looking at a three-bedroom, two-bath house. Very famous picture the Norman Rockwell thing, and all that prosperity. And so as they have died off, they've sold the houses, and the adult children in their 40s and 50s get the estates. And so some have moved to Boise, they've moved to Reno, they've moved to Texas, they've moved to Tennessee, Florida, North Carolina, all these places. We're watching it happen right now. It's a massive exodus. There are 
there's poverty and there's prosperity. And prosperity tends to corrupt. Because now my generation grew up entitled and enabled. And we see how a generation depended upon the Lord that was on their knees with World War II in churches, crying out to the Lord, where chaplains preached the gospel in the military without restraint. And as the American dream unfolded in a post-World War II world, in a nuclear world, that prosperity built from generation to generation. And yet there's that danger of prosperity where in the end it can corrupt that generation. And so again, I'm born in 1961, which is the same year they took prayer out of the public schools. And from that flashpoint of the year of my birth to this day, we have watched 60 years of dismantling and destruction against the good things of the Lord that came from the history of our nation, but particularly generations that went through trials and tribulations of great travail to pass something on to a generation mine. And so now they say the millennials that it's the first generation in American history that has less opportunity than the previous generation in America. Like there's a cycle where it gets better and better, and they're saying there's just no way it's just lined up. So you younger people, I apologize for that. I'm doing what I can to make your world better with the gospel and serving you and loving you. There is just, it can go that way. Prosperity is very dangerous. So many people say they're going to, if they get this, they're going to serve the Lord with it. And then they get it and they just, people are drug free for a while and they're doing great. And, you know, they're going to 12-step programs and going to church and sending money to James Dobson. And then the moment they get a $50,000 inheritance, they go on a drug binge with 10 grand on crystal meth and stuff. It happens. So we need to understand in the human experience that more than not, those broken moments, those broken seasons do much more to produce fruit in our life with Christ than prosperity. And here in this text, in this context, Moses is reminding this next generation who is coming out of poverty or simplicity by divine design, and they are going to have much wealth. They're going to have a lot of wealth. And he's warning them, when you multiply and your herds multiply and your vineyards and your assets increase and your properties, don't be lifted up because if you are, you will harden your heart against the Lord and you will lose it even as we're losing it now. And we know for this generation that was exhorted by Moses, they did get lifted up. They had a good run. Probably the best generation, much like my dad's generation, maybe. Time will tell. I would hope the millennials would do better than us for a legacy with the church than the baby boomers. But we know 80 years after this, when Joshua steps into eternity, 60 years after this. Because I've been thinking, you know, I'll be 80 in 2041. So I'm not, you know, I'm not super excited to be around in 2041. Nothing against 80 if you're 80. Uh, and then there's 2051, I'll be 90, and then 2061. So I'm thinking more like my grandkids in 20 years, my kids in 20 years. Hannah will be 51, not 31. She turned 31 yesterday, she'll be 51. And where it all goes, so that's, you older people understand, we're trying to really lay a foundation for our kids, not a, a, a practical inheritance, which is nice, but a spiritual inheritance, because a wise man leaves inheritance to his children's children, but the spiritual one's the most important one. But there arose within 50 years of this generation, a generation who did not know the word of the Lord. 
There arose a generation that did what was right in their own eyes. And a unified nation became fragmented in regions by tribes. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you didn't know what you got in this region with Naphtali or in that region with Gad or Asher or Manasseh. Fragmentation. Christ unifies, sin divides. Humility and brokenness unifies, pride and arrogance divides. And so I look at this text and I think, wow, it's just the way it goes in the human experience, isn't it? So we have to look at it tonight and think about what this means for us. Because he says, remember. And however old we are tonight, we need to stop for a moment and say, God's saying, remember. You shall remember. You shall remember. And there's a lot we can remember. When God delivered our life from death, delivered us from debt or something, a sickness. We have cancer survivors in our church. We have beloved people with cancer in our church right now. There's a lot of things you can remember, but in the context he was saying to them, you remember that the Lord led you. And it's good to remind that the Lord has led us. He's been with us the whole way. If you're here tonight, the Lord's over. The earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. And all things are held together by Christ. In him they consist. In him we move and have our very being, as Paul declared to the Athenians in Acts 17. And whether we, people want to acknowledge it, they were fearfully and wonderfully made in their mother's womb. They were. You were. You were fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb. And from the time you can do anything to help yourself, including how your name was selected, what name you are, to the environment you're raised in, you are who you are. And to get from the point of the womb to birth to this night, God has had his hand on us. He has watched over us and kept us safe. He has led us in the way. He's led you in the way and he's led me in the way. And he's been good to us. Now, in their context, he says he led them in the way in a difficult time. They had a 40-year trial. Now, we've all been through a one-year trial. A challenging trial this year, right? Well, it's really 15 months or whatever. Regardless of how you're doing in life, we've all been profoundly affected by the last 15 months. So that's a good context to look at this as well. That he's led us in the way and, and brought us through it. He says, you sure remember the Lord led you all the way these 40 years. So they had a 40-year trial. These people grew up in the wilderness and had a 40-year trial. They only knew manna for a meal. They didn't know, you know, affluent food. He he allowed them to be hungry. You saw that there in verse 3. Allowed you to hunger. He allowed them to know hunger. Paul the Apostle, when writing the Philippians, he said, I've learned how to abound and to abase. And in all that, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He learned in poverty that he could trust in the Lord when he was hungry. And he learned in affluence that he could trust in the Lord when he was prospering. And through it, he learned that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So whether we're in the lowest valley, Psalm 139, if I ascend into the grave, you are there. Or the highest place, if I go into the heavens, you are there. There is nowhere we cannot go from your spirit, David said in Psalm 139. And they had only known trials and tribulations. One of my favorite singers is called Zanti. He's a rapper out of Florida. He's just kind of sort of deep... It's almost like a Doors kind of sound, you know, but it's, it's really, and he, and he has a new song that just came out, and he says, I'm sorry. 
and it's geared toward millennials. You know, his, he's a millennial, it's his generation. It's like, I'm sorry what, for what they did to you. I'm sorry for how they hurt you. And I'm sorry. And he's on fire for the Lord. I love all of his songs. But he's saying, I'm sorry. Because people are hurting. And trials hurt. Sometimes in ministry, it's so such a helpless feeling to watch people suffer and go through heartaches that, that good people, because it rains on the just and the unjust, where just bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, and they, they work both ways in the human experience. You can't get to 80 without knowing heartache. You know, we always say you can't get to 80 without knowing trials, tribulations, tragedy. It's not possible unless you live in a trailer by yourself in the desert for 80 years. But we're meant to be with people and have relationships and to love and be loved and to know love. And through that, we learn heartache and sorrow. Because Jesus is a man of sorrows, that's a title for him in the book of Isaiah, prophetically. He knew sorrows. When he came to the grave with Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. He wept. And so as the Lord led them through this wilderness, he caused them to remember how he led them through the wilderness. He allowed, how he allowed them to hunger and they were the people of covenant. He said that he led them to humble them and to test them and to reveal them. And in the end, that's really what our trials and tribulations and even tragedies are supposed to do for us if we're people of faith in Jesus Christ. There are two, there's a test. I mean, obviously the last year is a test, right? Wouldn't we all agree the last year was a test? It really, really, I mean, it, it was a test. And well, it's not done. It's just going through different seasons. But it was a test. Faith or fear, Christ or Caesar, and who is sufficient apart from being on our knees in humility to even know which is which at times. Humility over arrogance, such a test. We get tested individually. We get them for seasons. We get tested collectively. The planet's been tested collectively, like not since maybe the Great War, World War II, or the Great War, World War I. We don't even, we don't even know where we're going yet with all this stuff. We're not done. They were done with their test. For better or for worse, they're about to march on Jericho and enter into the Promised Land. And they're going to, it's their time. It's their time. And so he says in reflection to them, I humbled you and I tested you to know it's in your heart. Now God knows it's in our heart. So really it's to reveal what's in the heart. God knows everything. He knows it's in our heart. But he'll reveal our heart through trials and tribulations to test us so we'll know what's in our heart. Kind of like are the abundance of a heart does a man or woman speak? So that's your words will reveal what's in your heart. So when you say something, they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just said that. Well, that's just revealing what's in our heart. And in their situation, he was humbling them and testing them and revealing them in this trial situation. And in doing so, he was teaching them to cling to him, to trust in him, and to obey his word. Because he said, to see whether or not you, you will obey my word. To see whether or not you will do that. You, see, he said to humble and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the test was, are you going to obey on a difficult day 
And are you going to trust the Lord day after day eating manna, day after day in the wilderness, day after day going in circles around Mount Seir, watching people die the generation before you? Are you going to trust in the Lord and grow in that situation, in those circumstances? Are you going to let him work the character, the, the moral compass, and the depth, and the faith in you? So when it's your chance to enter in, you're not going in circles. See, that's what was at play here. So he's reminding them, Every commandment, which I commanded you today, today, you must be careful to observe. Because this wilderness wandering of 40 years, this humbling, because God resists the proud, so we have to be humble. So you don't trust in yourself, you trust in the Lord. This test that reveals who you are, it's there to see if you will cling to the Lord and, and obey his word. That will become dependent on the Lord. Some people repulsed from the Lord during trials and tribulations. Some people blame the Lord in trials and tribulations. But wise people press into the Lord in trials and tribulations. And the wilderness is a place designed by God, whether you're Moses there for 40 years before this 40 years, or Jesus with 40 days and 40 nights with the devil. Whatever the wilderness is for us in the season, short season, long season, it's a place designed to humble us and bring us to brokenness and total dependence on Jesus Christ as his followers and disciples. And he'll allow us to hunger. He'll allow us to know that we cannot generate the food. We cannot generate the income. I mentioned this just Tuesday night with wealth. If your wealth truly belongs to the Lord, you'll know when someone steals it from you. If it belongs to you, you're furious. If it belongs to the Lord, you're just upset. If it belongs to you, you have to fight and get it back. If it belongs to the Lord, he's the best lawyer there is. As, oh Lord, they did this with your money. I taught this Tuesday night. We sent some money overseas, and it's on hold right now with PayPal. They froze it because of where it's going. And I was like, what? Because we don't normally use PayPal. I was like, what is this? Like, what? Did you mess with me like that? And I prayed, and the first thing I prayed, I was like, didn't you say on Tuesday night? That if it's my money, it's my problem? Yeah, I did. Lord, they're holding your money. And, you know, we just do what they ask us to do, and we'll see how it plays out. But I can tell you, I've slept great every night this week. My wife's like, I'm so proud of you. Because, like, 10 years ago, I would have been like, the Lord's Avenger. And, you know, you think about this. This is a big one. Because the Lord has to be a provider. And if he's allowed us hunger, he allows it for a reason, for depth of character. And if he multiplies us, good for us. But even so, that's from him, for him, and of him, and by him. And we sow it for him and leave it behind when we move on. It's all a test. But if it's truly the Lord's, then it's the Lord's. And you sleep in peace. But if people take what's yours, it, it can get really, it can get difficult. And don't think people can't take what's yours. Entire countries take what belongs to people. Can you imagine being in Europe between 1930 and 1939? Your beautiful home in Rotterdam, blown to smithereens by German bombers. Your Jewish estate on the French Riviera, seized and taken. Your nice home in, in Kiev, occupied by the Germans. You know what I'm saying? Like, your, 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 your coastal villa in St. Petersburg? Well, at that time, Leningrad. <laughs> A million people starved in Leningrad under the siege by the Nazis. 
People take things, government take things, and global government take things. And I feel like if I'm going to learn anything in the next 20 years, I want to learn to have people take things from me and not get bitter over it because I have to forgive no matter what. I'm thinking about the day of the Lord, not when I'm leaving behind what someone can take from me. And I've got stuff people can take. They can take this building. They can take our ability to raise funds as a church to some degree. But they can't take our faith and they can't take our gathering. And they definitely can't take our prayers or our fellowship with the Lord. Romans 8. The things that we admire in great people of church history, we admire the characteristics and the value and the legacy of their lives. More often than not, they're the ones that went through the hardest times because they were taught depth of character. I can't imagine being Jewish in Europe in the 30s and what governments and evil men took. They took their lives, they took their children, they took their liberty, they took everything. So if the takers come in the fourth quarter of our generation or the first half of yours, purpose in your heart to know that everything you have and everything you are is the Lord's. Because the Lord owns everything. And he'll allow hunger to teach dependency upon him and brokenness before him. Our only confidence in life is Jesus Christ. Before they tell you you have cancer, and then on Tuesday when they tell you you do have cancer. Pastor Alex. He's his hope on Monday. And when the cancer doctor says it is cancer on Tuesday, he's the same. And Pastor Chuck used to say, you should be no more moved by a headache than by a cancer Terminal diagnosis. Big God, little problem. Little God, big problem. Moses says, remember the Lord led you in the way. And he's led us this far. And he's got our future. And he's led us through trials and tribulations like he led them. And he'll lead us through future trials and tribulations. Do not fear the evil of the day. Or the evil of tomorrow. But live in the moment of peace and joy with the Lord from this morning. And get about the Father's business with obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. Let him humble us. Let him allow hunger if that's what we need to go deeper. Let him feed us with manna so we're not shallow people. Begging for pheasants with meat rotten in our teeth which happened to them. Let us find contentment with manna and simplicity and even hunger. Because those are the people that are going to rule and reign for all eternity in another dimension in glorified bodies. This is just a test. The whole thing's a test. We're going to glory, and glory is coming to us. He led us, and he allowed these things to teach us to depend upon him. Now, then he also said, so he led us in the way, he led them in the way, and he's led us in the way this way. But then it also says that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every but lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, from the Lord. This is the verse Jesus quotes when he's been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn those rocks into bread. And when you're really hungry, like, look, we're all, you know, you're at Albertsons or whatever, and you're, you're, you're hungry. I mean, never go grocery shopping when you're hungry. We all know that, especially if you've been surfing. That's the biggest combo ever. But anyways, you're hungry and you're light. And what you see, you see that fresh bread when they put it by the thing? You just grab that stuff. $1.99. Right? I mean, you start ripping that stuff apart in the car. Like, you're just wrecking dinner right now. You're just like, hey, kids, you want this big wad of bread? Like, you know, bread. Like, when you're hungry, bread is bread. 
Low-carb bread looks good when you've been fasting. Kind of spongy, but bread is bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes this passage right here to the devil's face when being tempted to use his powers to appease his flesh. He has to accomplish victory where Adam, the head of our race, failed. And the lust of the flesh, which this one is, the bread, is put into subjection for us that we can have that same victory. The great Saint Elizabeth Elliot said this many years ago before she stepped into eternity. Many people live to eat, but the follower of Christ, the disciple, eats to live. And there's a big difference. The one who lives to eat lives for their flesh. The one who eats to live lives for the spirit. That we're not driven by carnal cravings and appetites, but our flesh is subject to the spirit. And that's one of the disciplines that comes through fasting, actually. After Jesus said that in, there in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 when he's tempted, there in John chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000, John's account is very interesting for us on it. They, he fed 5,000 miraculously. And by the way, we're told that's a test for the apostles. And when they came back the next day, people, you know, they came for the food. And Jesus said this to that multitude that the 5,000 he fed the day before. He said, most assuredly I say to you, seek not me, the Savior, the Messiah. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of loaves and were filled. See, they lived to eat. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so they said, well, what shall we do? What, what is, what, what is the work of, what's the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent, Jesus, him, the Savior. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. He's talking about this. They're talking about this generation right now in this encounter with Jesus. Our fathers, the ones who entered in the promised land, they ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread is Jesus Christ. See, bread will satisfy our physical needs, but only Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ satisfies our spiritual needs. There's no human philosophy. There's no world religion or world religious systems that satisfy the soul, the spiritual needs. Only Jesus Christ. He says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives I to thee. And Muhammad doesn't give that peace. Buddha doesn't give that peace. Darwin and Marxists definitely don't give that peace. No man, no woman in the history of humanity, all sinners can give that peace and satisfy the soul. Only Jesus is the bread of life. And as that generation we just read about was exhorted by Moses, he let you hunger and he let you eat the manna. It's to that generation, they're quoting this generation. Jesus says, what was the, it was a shadow of things to come. The shadow was they ate the manna. What did the manna speak of? The manna spoke of what the church would do in the church age looking at Jesus. As that next generation entered in, having eaten manna for 40 years, but would no longer eat manna once they went into the promised land, it was uniquely for them. 
And it was an experience for them, like black and white TV. But for us in the church, we have Jesus Christ. And the manna represents the fullness and satisfaction of soul and complete purpose of fullness of purpose. He is the bread of life. That's what he says. I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Manna just evaporates. The worms wreck it by 11 in the morning. Jesus is the bread of life. He's who we need in the mountaintop and in the valley. Then we read on where they said, uh, Lord, give us this bread. And he said, I am the bread of life. Verse 35 of John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So the one, Jesus, when he comes, he fulfills the symbolism, all that, he fulfills it. And this generation, he fed 5,000 miraculously. They all knew it was miraculous. And they're not believing in him. Because he's trying, he's meeting this physical need to show them how he meets the spiritual need. Now, in the same chapter, he goes on and says this in verse, 40, uh, verse 47. He says, Most truly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate men in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man say, Give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna, the man in the wilderness, and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, this is the hard saying that many people quit following him. That's when Peter, he says to Peter, are you going to leave too? And he goes, where are, you going to, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. But you see, it was a physical thing to teach a spiritual thing. So it goes back now with Jesus quoting to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And now it goes all the way back to our text where God let them have leanness to teach them that only the word of God which is pointing toward Christ and fulfilled in Christ is ever going to fulfill them. Because Jesus is the Logos, John 1, 1, in the word was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word is God. And we beheld His glory, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you see, all of God's Word is pointed to Jesus, and the title for Jesus, one of His titles, is the Word of God. So it's not an intellectual scent, faith in Jesus. It's a heart belief of total dependency upon Jesus and being saved and born again. He is our life. In him we have life. We have abundant life, Jesus said. We have eternal life, Jesus says. He said it right here in the text. This is what separates us from the world. We're the church. We're his bride. We're on the front side of the wedding day. We're the bride. We're engaged right now. Jesus is the groom. We, the church, are on the front end of the glory of all that God has for us. Isn't that beautiful? 
Isn't that good to know? So all the trials and tribulations we're going through, he's preparing us for the glory to come. And he's teaching us, he's humbling us, he's testing us, he's showing us what's in us, in all of our experiences, and if we let him, we'll grow and we'll cling to him, we'll trust and, and be less confident in ourselves and more confident in him. And ultimately, that our, all of our confidence will be in the word of God. We cannot look to human government and men devoid of the spirit to tell us what's right and wrong. We have to look to the word of God. Let God be true and every man a liar because men lie. God does not and Satan is the father of lies. So when they match up, great. But when they don't, we have to be like Peter and John say, well, you decide what you think's right. But as for us, we must serve the Lord. And we're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep believing the word and applying the word and living the word. If you're not sure which way to err, always err on the side of obedience to the word versus governments of men. It's not rocket science. And if they claim the medical high ground, let them claim the medical high ground. In the end, let God be true and every man a liar. I'm not going to live in fear in 2021 or 2022 or any future year. I'm not going to live in foolishness either. But I'm not going to live in fear. Nor should you. I've taught you in 40 years of wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I have let you be hungry. I've humbled you and I've revealed you for this purpose because there's something better to come. And it's not in this life. I mean, it could get better. It could be your best life now or a better tomorrow or the best is yet to come. One of my favorite slogans from 2005 when we started the church. And you might get something better this side. You might multiply, multiply this side, but beware of arrogance. But in the end, our glory is on the other side. And driving here tonight, the Lord just remind me to remind you, your glory is not in time, but it's in eternity. Now, the last thing we see, and it is related to this text, is it says that, that last verse there, verse 5, says, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. God does chasten us. Parents chasten their children. They correct their children for their own benefit. We're not raising children to be adult brats and entitled. We raise children to learn to have their own faith, to find their own traction, to trust in the Lord and to cast their cares upon him, to understand that God has a vision and a calling and a purpose for their life. And if they'll humble themselves and respond to Christ, then they'll fulfill their purpose. We can't make adult children make good decisions. We all understand that. We can pray for them that they will. But we're not, we're not in the, the, the cross is not about enablement or entitlement. Let's make that very clear. Is there anything entitling about the cross? Is there anything enabling for laziness and slackness and indifference for the things of God from the cross? The cross cries out passion. It cries out justice. It cries out love. It cries out transformation. It does not cry out entitlement or enablement. Jesus was chastened for our sins. Jesus was chastened for our sins. And because we belong to the Lord, he'll chasten us. So the chasing of his son is not in vain. Jesus was chastened for our sins. And we say this, the only thing worse than being chastened, because chastening is not nice. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews tells us, you don't like chastening. It's not good at the present time. When you were ever disciplined by your parents or when I was getting spanked by mom, I, by the way, I always say I got spanked. I never got spanked that I didn't deserve and I got away with half the things I shouldn't have gotten away with. 
and it was always for corrective purposes. What if the Lord really let you get away with evil? What if he let you get away with that? Wouldn't that be the worst thing possible if he let you get away with that evil and there was no consequence for it? Wouldn't that be the worst thing? That would be the worst thing. He'll chasten you as your wallet and your finances because that's the most obvious place when the water dries up and the, the kernel on the, on the wheat dries up and becomes blustery. He'll chasten you with relationships that go south and disfavorable. The Lord chastens us for our own good. That's what he's saying. Now we come to the church and we realize that we are his church. And we realize that he's going to chasten us. He is going to chasten you and me for our shortcomings and our sins and failures. He's not going to let us get away with things. He's going to try and stop us before we cross lines and go in directions that we shouldn't go. And he's going to make it miserable when we do cross that line. And hopefully he won't give us over to ourselves because Pastor Chuck used to warn about that line that you cross. And some people cross lines that you should never cross and they are very hard to come back from. We know that from observation and maybe even our own lives. But the Lord chastens us. And Hebrews says we don't enjoy it when it's happening. But it tells us that when we're disciplined and we learn from it, that's the key. We have to learn from our chastenings. Feels like humanity was chastened for the last 15 months. I feel like the entire planet was chastened. I feel like we all got spanked. Even we weren't guilty. Even if you're like, I didn't do it, and you still got called in, you got chastened. I don't want to come out of the last 15 months and not be better, sharper, cleaner, and more focused with the kingdom of God than I was when it began. Some people just checked out, literally. Whatever we've been through in the name of Jesus should be working together for good in our lives. Because they were to remember that he humbled them, tested them, and revealed to them who they were. Have you been humbled, tested, and revealed who you are in the last 15 months? Or even in the journey as a whole? I hope you have. Some things maybe you passed, some things you didn't. But like, hey, we need to work on that. We need to deal with that. That's good. And then if you haven't learned in the last 15 months that it's the word of God that's going to bring you from here to the finish line, I don't know what to tell you. I mean... I sure hope you're trusting God's word over men's word right now more than ever before. Please tell me yes. Yes. Because this word hasn't changed since March 14th. Man's word, his science, his opinions, his medicine has changed dramatically since March 14th. But the word we've taught in this sanctuary has not changed. And that's why man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I believe many of us are going to be tested in the coming years as to what we're willing to sacrifice for a piece of bread. And I can only hope and pray we don't sacrifice our faith and our convictions and our character. Because men can and do take everything. But Romans 8 tells us, even if they can take your life, they cannot take your fellowship with Jesus Christ and your access to the King of Kings, your great high priest. So whatever has come around the corner... Do not live in fear of it, but have confidence in the Lord in and through it. And know that the Lord whom he loves, he chastens. 
I don't want to be entitled at 60. I don't want to be another bad king in the book of Kings and Chronicles. I don't want the wheels coming off in the fourth quarter and blowing a big lead. I want to get stronger and better and finish strong. And so do you. But you know, the odds are against us older people finishing strong. The odds show us from the Kings and Chronicles that we'll finish poorly, not strong. The greatest king apart from David, who finished poorly actually in a lot of ways, is Josiah. And he died at 39. It seems if you give men a long enough time, they'll roll over and die in a rut. Don't be that man and don't be that woman. And I speak for myself. We need to defy the odds of humanity and how people conduct themselves by going from glory to weakness. We need to go from glory to glory as what Corinthians tells us as in a mirror from glory to glory. And this text and the context of this text is a whole future laid out to learn from the past and to have triumph in the future and know that God truly does care. But the only thing that matters in it all is full obedience and his word.